the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 2. It's a delight, delight to do so with our good friend Pete Peterson. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, my favorite uh, academic and uh, public intellectual, all rolled up into one out there at Pepperdine doing great work. Pete, um, happy Friday. And to you, Seth. Great to be back with you. Thank you, sir. You know, I did two things today, and maybe you'll think this is juvenile or just stupid. Uh, but I was. <laughs> those are the only options. Yeah, those we... <laughs> really are. I, I mean, it's either it's either a good insight or it's so bleedingly obvious. I, I, um, I'm wasting everyone's time. And it's this: I was thinking about the past week and how pregnant it was with potentials for you know a lot of violence and disaster uh, people may forget already because our memories move so quickly or are moved so quickly the beginning of the week there was a tremendous amount of tension about riots in the streets uh, so i was thinking about that and how we got through this week and uh and then i was thinking about something i was reading about last year when you think about how dramatic covid was and we 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 aren't even close to appreciating probably the enormity of of of, of what we've done to ourselves and what COVID did to us. Mm-hmm. Then you add the riots of last year and the violence, and you you just take a step back and you think about how horrible last year really really was, mm-hmm. and how much stress was put on America. And I think today still those are the two greatest stressors in our country and our culture right now, the virus and race. Do you think that's right or is there something else and um, how are we handling it? Yeah, I, I think you've you've really put your finger on the on the two issues and the fact that they came together in a single year. Certainly it's fair to say that the summer of 2020 will go down as one of the most polarized in our history, certainly you'd have to go back to the 60s I to find think, yeah. a summer of unrest anywhere this, this scale and scope. What's different about um, this era versus that era is that I think many of the challenges that were revealed in the summer, um, exacerbated by the pandemic to be sure, mm-hmm. but, but nonetheless mm-hmm. revealed, mm-hmm. Um, have not been resolved. Mm-hmm. And as you and I have discussed a number of times, the fact that many of these ideas, these polarizing ideas, are coming out of major civic institutions in the United States, for example, like colleges and universities, uh, and show little sign of abating, uh, these are a set of challenges that that face us um, not just not just this pandemic year, um, but for for years to come. Do you think I'm being too simplistic uh, or, um, 
yeah, let's just stick with simplistic for a moment. Do you think I'm being too simplistic in thinking about Minneapolis this way, that it, none of this had to be the case? Um, the trial itself, for those paying attention to it and watching it, noticed something interesting. What was said inside the courtroom by the um, prosecution and defense related in no way to what was said outside the courtroom. I'm talking about the issue of race. The issue of race never came up in the trial of Derek Chauvin itself. The prosecutors never claimed he engaged in a racist behavior. The defense never had anything to say about it for the same reasons. But out – in other words, in Minneapolis, a cop killed a man. Mm-hmm. That's 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 that that could have been the narrative. It was turned into a racial narrative outside mm-hmm. of the courtroom, and then after the jury finds the verdict of guilty on three counts for Derek Chauvin, which is the result that a lot of people wanted, but I think uniformly the left wanted. Um, as a result of that. The spokesman for the Democratic Party, namely the president and the vice president and, of course, the activists uh, who hold press conferences in Minneapolis, they all were talking about how we still have to deal with this is but one brick in the wall of systemic racism. The president of the United States took the opportunity of the verdict to say to the world that systemic racism is still a stain on our nation's soul. Um, In other words, race is one of our key stressors. But it seems to be made that way. It, it doesn't seem to have been really – I mean when you boil things down, it wasn't what was at issue in Minneapolis. It was male It was male horrible violence and it had nothing to do with race, at least well, not that course, we know. We can't, we can't forget as well the, the Speaker of the House. That's right. Uh, Nancy Pelosi right. with her strange remarks yeah. at the microphone yeah. following – the announcement Very of the odd. verdict, seeming to say that that Floyd somehow sacrificed his life yeah. as a yeah. as a willing martyr yeah. in some strange way for this broader cause, yeah. and it just was yet another in the expanding folder of weird things that come out of the speakers. Very weird and very well. detached from any sense of reality. I mean, I, I, I can't even... I, part of me thinks the family is watching that, thinking, "Who? what the hell is she talking about? But you raise a really great point, Seth, and, and, and that is that the subject of race, if you go back over the, the transcripts of this trial... It was not really a factor. Uh, neither the defense nor the prosecution in attempting to sway a jury towards a particular verdict sought to – and let's just focus on the prosecution okay. for a second. The prosecution did not use race as part of their effort to bring justice to Officer Chauvin – But outside the courtroom, those that were seeking to make their argument, to prosecute their public case, so to speak, the entire discussion was about race. That's right. right. And so I think you you raise a very good point. In other words, it's being pushed on us as an issue because, you know, there's a lot of things a prosecution has to do. They have to, of course, show motive if they can, but for sure they have to show intent. And racially yep. motivated motive and intent was just not part of their case, not part of their prosecution. They didn't go there. 
They didn't. They didn't. And yeah. that's again, that's not to say that we can't have these other conversations. Right. But right. when those when those arguments turn into violence, if not, I think from some quarters, almost the the begging of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I, I think we saw in in a number of public squares, definitely over last summer. Uh, you know, that's that's where we we wonder whether there are those who really do want to find the unum out of our pluribus, mm-hmm. or they're perfectly happy if not. Um, you know that this is this is a a part of at least one of their goals that being in this polarized space is is something that is of some advantage to them. And I think we all need to be really suspicious of that. And I think in some ways, if the prosecutors uh, involved in the case could come out and be interviewed about why they didn't try to make race a larger part or really any part of their case, I think it could speak to the larger set of issues and discourse that we're having on race in the country. Yeah, and what I would hope they would say, uh, what I would hope they would say is we just didn't have any evidence of racism on behalf of the yeah. defendant, you know, yeah. um, which no journalist has pointed out contrary. So, I mean, they could easily have said that or be able to say that. And then it strips the bark off of so much if it matters, if people are paying attention, because I think there is this thing going back to our two stressors, Pete, uh, the virus and race or race, race problems in this country or racialism, re-racialism. Um, both things are being, shall we say, um, exacerbated, uh, that, that their stresses are being, um, exacerbated or at least, um, uh, uh, super, supersized to, to, to have an effect, a dramatic effect on the people that it otherwise wouldn't have. In other words, this country yeah. could have been Florida with the virus, but it didn't choose to be Florida with the virus. It chose to be partly Florida, but mostly California and New York. <laughs> right? It could have yeah. it could have, it could have taken the virus seriously and realized obese and old people are in trouble, children are not, and we 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 need not shut everything down and respike our um, substance abuse and suicide rates. It could have been handled that way. Just as I think in Minneapolis, um, the killing of George Floyd could have been handled with just the facts, just the facts, without the use of political hyperbole to make all these stressors worse. Can we talk about the investment of the left and the Democrats in making things always the worst? Absolutely. I'd love to do that. Thank you. We're talking with Pete Peterson. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, and we will be right back. have uh, Dean Pete Peterson, also Professor Pete Peterson from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. You're engaged in overseeing and instructing young minds, Pete, in public policy, solving public policy problems. And it seems it must be a very big challenge to you and your profession these days when you see an entire half of our country push to the levels of extreme and urgency and crisis and pandemic, um, public policy problems, making them so urgent that they even create anxiety in children. There's climate anxiety is now a diagnosis in children. Did you know that? I just learned about this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
how do you – I mean to the left, everything is always on the eve of destruction. It's the worst-case scenario. Obviously, that's what gives them permission for radical change. But how do you as a professor of public policy teach students between the critical and the alarmist? Well, I'd say the first approach that we take is to make sure that we ground all our students in uh, a historical approach to policymaking. Um, that's not just a study of history. We have a, one of our faculty members here who's a historian describes what he wants to inculcate in the classes that he teaches here is that he wants students to think historically about public policy. Mm-hmm. And again, that's not just a memorization of dates and events and so forth. It's, it's an understanding that as you face a modern problem, let's just take climate change, uh, that you can ground that in the other attempts and movements that have happened around the climate and environmentalism and to understand how that approach to policymaking, which just as you framed it, is one that shows a level of urgency that precludes any deliberation around solutions. It demands and requires a single solution that if we don't do X, then Y is going to happen. We've had other events like that in American history. Uh, And as I'm sure your listeners will know, I mean, the world has been due to end from climate catastrophe, um, you know, at least 15 different years in the last 30 years, as was originally predicted. Um, you know, you think about the Malthusian predictions around, you know, the, the, the overpopulation of the planet. And I mean, there've been a number of these, which, uh, scientism has been proven to be the grounds for, uh, focusing and forcing, uh, particular policy solutions without the time for deliberation and, and frankly, broader public engagement. And so we really want our students to always be able to step back from the heat of the present moment to understand when the American project has been faced with these challenges before and and to take that more historical approach to policymaking. I just had a thought, and it's probably um – uh, what's the word I want? Uh, it may be, it may be, it may be somewhat arrogant on my part to to, to offer this. Uh, uh, presumptuous. That's the word I want. It may be presumptuous of, on my part to offer this, but I wonder if Pepperdine might consider a course, Pete, um, on something like extremism as political science or alarmism as political science. Mm. You know, thinking about all of the profession that has turned its head towards emergencies that never came about. Wilford Riley, we've done the list, right? You've done it. The population bomb was certainly one that never happened. Uh, Wilford Riley did a little list on Twitter. Uh, Not only the population, peak oil, Y2K, global cooling, um, uh, Western hetero AIDS epidemic, uh, frequent acid rain, killer bees, great migration, uh, I would add to that nuclear winter, nuclear war. Yes, um, yes. You know, uh, w- w- there's the list is longer than that, b- but it's a list that's been handed to us by left left wing freakouts. Well, again, it's I think the ability to say 
to be to to understand that sometimes it's not just the issue mm-hmm. it's the awareness yeah. that you're being forced yeah. to make decisions because you're being told there's no time to do to do the necessary deep digging wrestling through trade-offs mm-hmm. knowing unintended consequences knowing the, the the various ways in which i mean one of the books we use here is daniel kahneman's thinking fast and slow Perfect. right which right. Initially, it doesn't seem like a public policy book, but really is about how our biases uh, interact with policy decisions in such a way that you can be the greatest expert in the world, mm-hmm. but your knowledge is only a sliver of a greater uh, set of factors. And knowing where your biases, intuitive biases, can really um, preclude good decision-making is, is definitely something that we need to we need to resist those calls, those siren calls, if you will, uh, to say we need to do this now. Speaking of biases and something I wanted to return to to the earlier part of this conversation, Pete, if I could, it seems to me yesterday and the day before particularly, I was uh, taking a lot of calls from listeners, Pete, talking about some of the stuff Joe Biden was saying, some of the stuff Kamala Harris was saying. Um, some of the stuff our ambassador to the UN, the U.S. ambassador to the UN, was saying about uh, racism woven into our founding. I was getting call callers saying, you know, 15 and 20 years ago there wasn't this much race talk. We weren't as racialized a society as it seems we are today. Yeah, and they almost to a to a one of them said, you know, it's almost weird that it's not almost weird. It's it's almost identifiable that kind of started around January of 09, and what we thought would solve it made it worse. A lot of them said that. I don't know if I agree with it, but I know that Barack Obama did not do much to make it better. Yeah, and I can't speak exactly to the timing, only to say that the racializing is only part and parcel of the greater compartmentalization of a diverse society that cannot stand, uniquely cannot stand, these forms of uh, segmentation. And so, of course, it's not just the racial piece, it's the ethnic piece, it's the sexual orientation piece, it's the male-female piece, it's the class piece, it's the regional piece. You can look at every way in which we can understand ourselves as different and look back over the last few years, and if every one of those was on kind of a on a on a thermostat, <laughs> you would see in each one of those where where ten fifteen years ago, where the thermostat was held relatively, you know, at room temperature, yeah, seventy eight degrees, them have been turned up. Yeah, yeah, we went from seventy eight to one hundred and five degrees, didn't we, on these things? In each of those areas, in each yeah. of those areas, I'd like to break it down a little bit with you. Just, yep. you can you remember that list? If we started yep. off on the next, that'd be great. We'll talk with uh, more with uh, Pete Peterson, dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Um, on how we deal with these stressors and the hysteria the left gives us and why there's so much more heat on these issues now when they seemed to be settled, moderate, and cooling off, oh, anywhere from 15 to 20 years ago. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have with us Pete Peterson. He joins us 
on alternate Fridays. Give us a view from the academic and public intellectual world on the uh, contemporary issues. And Pete and I were just kind of talking about the heat that's been turned up on a lot of societal stressors, whereas it seemed you know, relatively stable or, or at least comfortable something like 15, 20 years ago. Pete, Pete, I wanted you to elaborate on that, but can you give me those categories again? Yeah, I mean, we we obviously have been focusing on race yeah. here, but there's also ethnicity, sexual orientation, regional differences, male-female, uh, the gender question more broadly. Uh, all of these categories, uh, class certainly one of them as well, all of these categories uh, fit within a country that does not have a real uh, native ethnicity to it, right? Uh, depends uniquely on an agreement upon a common set of principles in order to flourish. And in each of those areas, we've seen tensions increased and I'm afraid to say that some of this, although I'm grateful that more is being known about this, a lot of these principles come out of academia and out of the study uh, known broadly as critical race theory. But there are a whole series of these critical theories that very much intend in their base to say if you are of a particular ethnicity, race, male, female, orientation, otherwise, then you cannot know what it's like to be someone like me. Mm -hmm. And more than that, as we think about intersectionality, mm -hmm. uh, that puts a whole other layer on differentiating people one from another, but, but also implicit in that is uh, an ethos that you cannot know and that there is a hierarchy of victimhood in a lot of these groups. And so with that, uh, I think we're all becoming much more aware that these theories that had been kept in academic departments for years have really now come out of academia and into the broader society and, uh, so you read a book like uh, James Lindsay, uh, Helen Pluckrose's uh, Cynical Theories, it really shows the development of these theories that had been on the fringes of academia and how now they've worked themselves into the forefront mm -hmm. of the public square, all mm -hmm. seeking uh, conflict um, in many ways. And of course, we're, we're seeing so much of that in our public discourse today. It's a good point. Forty years ago... In the academy, if a if a if a if a aspiring assistant professor uh, interviewing for a tenure track position uh, were doing so uh, with their education based and their expertise in some form of critical race theory, the faculty would forty years ago any given faculty department would debate whether they wanted that on their campus, whether they wanted that in their department. I think I'm right about that. They'd say, "Do we want to do this? This this small emerging." Uh, you know, uniquely different. I remember when they were doing it with critical legal theory. It was it just was yeah. very small at the beginning, very small. Yeah. 
and now you would uh, you would think it's almost the default. It, it is the default, uh, unless you you pay homage to it in your dissertational or other professional work. You would not even get a fair hearing with a hiring committee. I'm guessing. Um, that that's that's the way it's it's worked out in the academy, and then of course yep. it's spilt out from the academy into the larger culture. And what's so dang gone interest, gosh, gosh darn interesting about this to me, Pete, is the way you put it. When you said, as a country, I wrote it down as fast as as I could, um, as a country that doesn't exactly have its own native unanimity, um, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have its own native identification based on religion, race, or ethnicity, or anything else. It only has common agreement on mores, right? Yeah. Uh, what Lincoln called the electric cord that ties non-founding generations back to the founders, beliefs and certain principles. And what seems to me in those categories you mentioned, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender question writ large, is that as 30 years ago, a generation ago, we started getting rid of the Western core, Western civilization Mm -hmm. as a concept to be taught, as a set of ideas to organize around, and have agreement on, once that went, our agreement on mores that you speak about went too. I'm pushing up against the break. I said a lot. Can we revisit it on the other side? Yes. It, yeah. I hope it made sense. Okay, I'll, yep. try, I'll try it again if it didn't. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Delighted to have Pete Peterson with us. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu is the website. Pete, we were talking about the stressors we face from race and ethnicity issues, sexual orientation, gender issues writ larger, and um, how we seem to be so disunited on these things and mm. the temperature of the rhetoric and the po- political discussion so hot. And you were saying, you know, we're not a country that that has a um, homogeneity or commonality, right, right? based yep. on ethnicities or religions or anything like that. What we had was agreement on mores and yeah. general political philosophy, and that was dispensed with 30 years ago. We took away, mm-hmm. uh, if you will, uh, we, we took away that which united us, the, the the authority of Western civilization to the Judeo-Christian values that came from it yeah. were put in our founding. And once that goes, now we agree on nothing. We disagree on everything. And all those issues kind of interesting to me, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, all of those issues were addressed by the philosophy of Western civilization mm-hmm. as mostly meaningless, funny enough. Yeah. I mean mostly we cooled down and got to room temperature by making these things, rendering them nugatory, meaningless, right? The point now is to make them meaningful, I guess. Right. You know, and I, I think – one of the things that's so insidious about the attacks we're seeing on the American founding and particularly on the writing of the Constitution is that the Constitution itself, beyond a governing document, is explicitly a governing document for a diverse people, right? When you think about the composition of the different powers, the balance of powers, federal government to states, the power extended to citizens and communities, 
the the diffusion of power to more local levels. There was, I think, sometimes we we look back on that time and think that that was a homogeneous time. We're told that it was just a bunch of white slave owners right. that came up with this document, right. without acknowledging the real diversity, not only among the founders but within this young nation yeah. that we saw back in the 18th century. Uh-huh. And that quality of American diversity, and yes, it's changed now from diversity of, of religion and class and, and certainly national origin to one where we're seeing all these other forms of diversity. But that's essentially what the Constitution was written for. It was written for a diverse people. It was intended to draw these bounds around to say, yes, this freedom can be yours, but it's, it's to be appreciated in a way that it comes from this kind of central source, that there are, there is this natural rights tradition, that this, these things do come from uh, God, these rights, but we are, because they do come from God, we are connected to one another in a really unique and powerful way. And so when we attack the Constitution in the way that it's being attacked today, without a proposal for some other document, by the way, that was supposed to govern us, we're essentially attacking a document that was intended for the perfect moment like the one we're experiencing, right? The one that allows for real diversity either among states or communities or poor people, uh, while understanding, back to the national motto again, that there still does need to be an unum that holds us together, even as we understand that there is a pluribus, because that's what America has always, always been. And if we're if we're not going to be able to appreciate the genius of the Constitution as a governing document, uh, then then there hasn't been anything proposed better that can govern and organize a diverse people. That's nicely stated, Pete. Um, that's very nicely put. I, I wonder if some years ago Mark Stein had the clever line that it's it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle once mm. you've broken the bottle, and I, I just don't know if it's if it's broken uh, beyond repair. You and I speak such a very 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 different language than so many other parts of the country, uh, liberal, left, Democrat, you name it, athletics, professional athletics, journalists. Mm. You and I, they, they just we – w- we would talk about natural rights and they would just – they would their eyes would roll. They, they wouldn't know what we're talking about and they would talk about race and ethnicity uh, being so importantly uh, prominent in a person's life in a country's history that – we wouldn't accept it. We we don't accept it. Can we ever put this together again? Well, if there's are if there are glimmers of hope, and certainly your your show is one of them, Seth. I think there's just a growing awareness now of what the stakes are. That the left, by and large, is becoming so uh, focused on division, and not to say there aren't some on the right that are trying to sow some of the the seeds of, of discontent as well. But I, I do see a powerful reaction coming to this, and it's actually coming from a very ethnically and racially diverse group of people, Americans, who understand. You know, you think about, you know, a Glenn Lowry mm-hmm. at, at Brown or a John McWhorter or, you know, others mm-hmm. that we can name that understand that 
you know, this is an unsustainable course that we're on, this constant categorization of one another, and then the hierarchy of victimhood that we put each other on, that unless we're able to appeal to those things that hold us together, uh, we will, as the founder said, hang, as Franklin said, hang separately. Yeah. Um, so, and I, and I think those stakes are becoming... Uh, people are becoming much more familiar with, with what the trade-offs are. I think you're right. I'd like to think that it's 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 a point somewhere close to 1858, 9, or 60, mm. in this, not in the sense of on the – on the um, on the precipice of, a, of 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 a military battle, but at least in the sense of recognizing where a house divided, and that it has to go one way or the other. I don't, I really don't think there's 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 an easy way to compromise with the with the mm-hmm. racial industrial complex. I don't I don't think there's a way for someone like me or you from a very deep position level ever being able to agree that race will matter or indicate much meaningful about I don't think we can ever accept that I just don't and it's so deep and hard hardened in us on the other hand I don't know that the other side is so irretrievably wed to the notion that race does matter that they can't be talked out of it because I think our position does come from one of natural right natural tr- justice and natural law and theirs is um, is, is artificial I really do believe their their belief system is is artificial, foisted on them, and does not come from anything one can find in history, nature, law, or natural right. I think that's fair, Seth. I hope so. And, and the gradual, so. and I think there's there's a piece of the secularization of yep. culture yep. too yep. Um, that that detaches us from these eternal truths and eternal identities. That uh, again, where we're on now, this material approach is just unsustainable. It's I think been shown that way over yep. the centuries. You bet. Pete, we went a little deeper and a little uh a little more uh little little more uh a little less happy this this week. <laughs> but we should be happy. It's it's uh it's it's not only a moral imperative, we got through another tense filled week. So Pete Peterson, let me thank you for everything you do and for your time with us this afternoon. Great to be with you, Seth. Thanks. God bless you, sir. Thank you. I'm Seth, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Portions of this show are brought to you by my friend Solar Sandy, the woman who brought integrity back to solar in Arizona. Integrity is one big difference between Solar Sandy and the others. Another big difference is that she actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. It's so important when going solar, you do it the right way, and Solar Sandy has that formula. She wants to put more of your hard-earned money back into your pocket. When you go solar, Solar Sandy will pay 12 months of your solar payments, any portion of your power bill for the first 12 months, and the first 50 families who sign up with her will receive a $1,000 signing bonus. That's right. No solar panel payment, no power bill for 12 months, and a $1,000 bonus signing. There's no better time to go solar with Solar Sandy than right now. Go to AskSolarSandy.com. That's AskSolarSandy.com. Picking up just where I left off with Pete and the racialization and the tremendous amount of unlearning we've gone through. It's in the Plato Mino. It's in Plato's Mino at the end where he has this fetching argument about knowledge and that knowledge is really just taking keys to unlock the things are – we used to know. 
that we have to unlock the things we used to know, the things written in our heart, the things we know deep in our soul, that that's what true education is, things we used to know. So we've gone through, I think, quite the opposite, a great unlearning, especially when it comes to issues of race. A listener sent me this today from a school district, Madison Metropolitan School District. Who knows where it is, whether it's in uh, Phoenix or whether it's in Wisconsin. I just don't know. But this is an official school district post. Hello, families. Looking back on all the police brutality and violence that is going on in our country and our communities, and even after the verdict of Derek Chauvin and the murder of another young black female, it is very necessary to have space for our families to discuss and process. Most important thing we can do for our students and their families is to continue our work to build strong, trusting relationships as we engage them through virtual and face-to-face learning. Only after we establish these strong connections can we expect students and families to openly share and dialogue around such complex issues. I have no idea what they're saying. We want to work together to help our students and families feel safe, discuss challenging issues productively, and think about how they can make positive change in our community. That's the post. I want my schools doing none of that with my children, by the way. I I want them talking about Chauvin and police brutality, zero. But that's not the best part of this um, Facebook post. You want to – ready for the best? The best part? Please join us tomorrow at 4.30 p.m. to have this – these difficult but necessary conversations. See the two Zoom links below. Zoom link one for parents of color. Zoom link two for white parents. Wonderful. Now do water fountains.